Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Chalam, the host of Women Ride for Wellness. Today I have a very unique woman who is very well accomplished, Dr. Regina Drews. She's a board certified cardiologist, but here's the cool thing. She's not just a physician, but she is a leader in her field. She has been the chief of cardiology, very rare position for a woman to attain because it's predominantly a man's world. And she's also continued her education, not just in medicine, but she's getting her dual degree in executive MBA and master of science in healthcare leadership at Cornell University. So what I really like about it is she has done so much, everything centered around how to reverse result cardiac issues rather than just treat them. Here's something that you want to know about her. She's a nationally recognized speaker, so we're very honored to have her here on our podcast. She lectures at the American College of Cardiology, American Society of Nuclear Cardiology, and Integrative Health Symposium. She's also interviewed very often by media when they need a specialist opinion. Dr. Drews aspires to create a sustainable contemporary cardiology practice paradigm based on functional medicine and holistic, patient-centric, that means really focused on helping the patient. And she does this augmented through data analytics and mobile technology, because we have, I think if there's anything that we've learned in 2020 is we need to be very electro digitally savvy if we need to continue to provide the care our patients need. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Regina Drews. Hi, everyone. Welcome. You are going to listen to this phenomenal conversation from a very unique cardiologist. Welcome, Dr. Drews. Really, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Women Wide for Wellness. Thank you so much, Nisha, for having me. Awesome. So let's get started with your journey. Um, first of all, cardiology, I think if where I practice or where I was trained, a good majority of the cardiologists are men. I don't know why. Um, they're so, and maybe because people think women don't get heart disease, though we know they do get heart disease and they die more than men do for a lot of reasons. But how did you decide cardiology was your specialty? And why did you decide that way? Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go to the why first. You know, I think maybe... The first time it came to my attention that I can actually do it was uh, in medical school because we were in the anatomy and physiology class and we had to learn the heart sounds. And it was at that time that I had so much fun learning the heart sounds and all the faces of the cardiac cycle and, you know, when certain valves open and close and why they make a sound and how does that all materialize in the physical exam and the electrocardiogram. Uh, I knew from that that this was sort of a lot of fun and uh, very intriguing. And uh, so much physiology comes into play when you're working in cardiovascular space, Uh, not just, you know, limited to the heart sounds, but actually to the whole concept of vascular perfusion abnormalities and what you can learn. And then uh, during my training in internal medicine, there was a little bit of an uncertainty, you know, I thought maybe I'll be an endocrinologist, maybe I'll be a rheumatologist, you know, these are very stimulating, very intellectual specialties, but they lacked 
the actionable energetic field of cardiology had you know uh, this was the era when uh, uh, stenting was just coming onto the scene and for the first time positioned to uh, basically be uh, a priority treatment for acute myocardial infarction and uh, being part of that and kind of being uh, cooked, if you will, in that, you know, secret sauce and uh, seeing the energy and the adrenaline rush that comes from that moment when someone who is in the midst of a heart attack just gets the blood flow back. That was very inspiring. And I think that sealed the choice. And uh, you're right, 100%, that even till this day, cardiology continues to be a very heavily male-dominated specialty. We made a lot of progress, you know, I'm active in women in cardiology efforts by the American College of Cardiology. Uh, there has been a tremendous amount of effort by the organized cardiology force to actually uh, recruit more women into cardiology. We know, for example, that uh, the internal medicine trainees are currently seem to be 50-50 or some sort of very close yeah. proportion, but the amount of women that actually, the proportion that goes into cardiology is, is very slim. So, you know, I think nowadays we have just a fairly small group. I would, you know, a few years ago, the number of women in cardiology was around 17% or so on a physician level. And now it might be a little bit larger, but we certainly didn't reach parity. And, you know, at the level where I used to be, which is chief of cardiology, less than 5% of cardiology chiefs in the U.S. are women. So that's, that's where we stand. Yeah. I, actually, cardiology is one of those fields where you get to be a surgeon without being a surgeon. <laughs> it's almost like, right, you get to be in procedure, get to scrub up and get to right. do something and actually uh, fix a problem instantaneously, which only surgeons get to do. I mean, I've always come to like where traditional medicine goes, chronic diseases, like you keep treating the disease, the disease never goes away, but a surgeon can fix you, you have a problem with your gallbladder, I take it out and you're good, good to go, go back and eat whatever brought your gallbladder problem, you can go back and eat all those things. But I feel like cardiology is a great field that actually saves lives. And so in the same, um, you know, in the same vein, it's also high stress, just like emergency room physicians. But you see a lot of female emergency room physicians, but not so many female cardiologists. So get, getting to um, talk about, in general, cardiology or the heart disease, most people connect heart disease to just stents, right? I have heart disease. But what is really heart disease? What comprises everything that surrounds the heart? And what sh where do people begin to realize or when should they begin to realize that they are probably headed in that direction of having cardiovascular or heart disease? So a uh, great question, Nisha, and I think I'm going to tap into the analogy that you're making in regards to surgery. But yeah. the interesting thing is that uh, unlike uh, surgery, uh, cardiology actually is working to fix what essentially is a chronic disease. Yeah. Right? And so one of the things that happened to cardiology and cardiologists, uh, and that, you know, of course, uh, happened at the dawn of interventional procedures that just as you said were a remarkable step forward you know they literally were 
put in the map by a very uh, uh, interesting efforts by just a few individuals, you know, the father of international cardiology tried the angiography on himself first, you know, and that's how he started. But the idea sort of transplanted into a cardiology mindset that this end-stage management of disease, which is stenting uh, or bypass surgery, and that's usually done by cardiac surgeons, uh, is sort of a cure. And I think what happened is that the mindset shifted and perception was that procedural aspects of cardiology are highly valuable, whether it's putting in a pacemaker or a defibrillator or putting in stent or stents or even sending a patient to surgery. That seemed to have been become a definition of what the practice of cardiology really is supposed to be. And it sort of uh, kind of put the priority very low for the preventive effort. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's interesting that this happened because some of the people who actually launched the preventive effort and some of them who actually went into integrative or functional medicine uh, space for cardiology came from that interventional domain and they came for a specific reason because eventually you start to realize that what you're doing is that you're putting out fires, but you're not preventing the forest from getting dry because cardiology or, or cardiovascular issues in a more global kind of framework are truly the issues that have to do with so-called endothelial dysfunction, right? And that's more specific for vascular aspects of heart disease. But I think many uh, patients may not realize that there are multiple forms of heart disease, actually, you know, structural heart diseases, you know, things that have to do with heart failure, with deterioration in the function of the heart muscle, or alternatively problems that have to do with lack of uh, pliability, if you will, in the heart muscle, so-called diastolic dysfunction, valve diseases, of course, uh, arrhythmias, and the vascular diseases. So, so kind of, you know, the most common conceptualization is this person who is clutching their chest and they're having a heart attack, and of course, they get to the emergency room, the cath lab, and they get a stent, and it's a phenomenal safe, and it's a phenomenal procedure, but this is just the tip of the iceberg, mm -hmm. because... You know, we have noticed, for example, during COVID-19 that there were significantly fewer heart attacks admissions than comparing to the same period last year. And not all of it could have been explained by the fact that patients were concerned about coming and seeking care because of the risk of infection. Uh, there were also something else happened. There was less pollution because the economy sort of went through screeching hold. Uh, there was less stress because less commuting to work, less eating out, and potentially more eating at home, and actually more socialization that, you know, hopefully for majority of people, though obviously not for everyone, refocused them and gave them that social bonding, mindfulness experience that they have not really had in the course of daily life. So that proves this powerful impact of lifestyle factors and you know it's not as dramatic as putting in a stent or a pacemaker or a defibrillator but it is in many regards more valuable because through that approach one can address not just one life but many lives and do it in a very cost-effective fashion uh, at the point where not only it enhances the individual but it 
works on a population health level and helps us to stem, you know, this absolutely tsunami rise in chronic diseases, you know, these associated cardiovascular risk factors, diabetes, you mentioned high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, these are super powerful risk factors and they sort of just add fuel to that forest fire that we used to, you know, our forest fires, a heart attack or heart failure, and that's where we try to fix things. But A, we need to stop adding fuel, and B, we need to take care of the forest so that it doesn't become dry and susceptible to the forest fire. And that's kind of the best analogy I can put out there because, you know, heart disease is surely uncontrollable fire in someone's vascular system that's that's really the kind of concept that i want my patients to understand that's the fire is burning on the inside right right and i really like the way you said how you're different from a, like a surgeon when you look at it surgery is really when they there's something acute going on sometimes for chronic like colon cancer could be something that you know evolved over some years but we look at cardiology as stent placement as actually a cure of a particular disease and that's the notion that you know that's the belief system that the patient has but those of us in the medical field realize that that stent placement is the end point of this disease journey and really that really makes us want to look at what is feeding that blockage and you did talk broadly about a lot of things um, and even that data where, you know, there were less cardiac deaths during COVID-19. And number one is, of course, stress, which I don't think any one of us can. I mean, we actually have control over it, but we don't think we do. Most of the times, we don't think we do. It's like everything is an event. If you Even if you talk about COVID-19, some people say it's been the best year of their life because they, they've had time to think about things that they could never have thought of. Uh, in fact, in my practice, people join the practice now because they have time to take care of their lifestyle issues. So it has been great for some people and, and other, other people who have lost their jobs so they have a little more stress and it has been stressful for others. So the same situation, different people perceive it differently. So somebody who comes with like a stent and when you said, you know, the thing about reduction in uh, stress, eating at home, bonding more with your family and friends. All of these are the foundation, but it's the foundation of health in general. What do you think that people need to know? Like when, let's say somebody has actually had a stent place and has been told by their cardiologist, just take these four medications and you're going to be good. And just come in every six months for a stress test or every year for a stress test. I don't remember what the what insurance will cover. It's all about what insurance covers, not necessarily what the patient needs at this point, but come in for the test and we will see what else we need to do. Or they'll stent the one dangerous vessel and then they ask them to come in for an elective stenting. What are your, how would you explain it differently being a functional medical cardiologist? How would you explain that whole process differently to a patient? And so Great question, Nisha. And, uh, you know, you know more cardiology than you give yourself credit for. But uh, I wanted just to make sure that it's very clear that 
during COVID, we had fewer admissions for acute myocardial infarction, but not necessarily lower mortality. Actually, the rate of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest increased substantially, especially in the New York City. So there was a lot of concern that patients are delaying care and they're trying to sort of help oh, that out at home. You know, we don't know yet how it's going to impact, let's say, annual mortality. But uh, what was striking is that rapid reduction in acute MI presentations. And, you know, uh, uh, and not all of it could have been attributed just to fear of uh, being admitted to a hospital. But to uh, go back to your question is that what usually happens when a patient like this sees me, and this is, you know, very common in my practice, probably one of the most common patient types, is that the first thing that we always discuss is the very notion that stenting just addresses end stage of a disease that happens to happen in a particular time period, right? Particular time frame. And I usually tell my patients that this plaque is sort of like uh, a scar, if you will, in your coronary artery, and it may potentially be bleeding or, you know, not healing well. It could pop, which is when you have a heart attack, or it could calcify, and this is where you have a more stable situation. But for every one of those areas, we call them stenosis, for every one of those stenotic areas, for every one of those blockages, the process that put them into place is diffuse and it's happening in every single blood vessel of the body, you know, down to the most microscopic level. And so what makes this process go forward? Well, we have our traditional risk factors, right? Hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, stress, smoking, uh, obesity had recently been recognized as a, a type of a risk that's right. So, you know, so those are traditional risk factors. They come from long-term studies, Framingham heart studies and the offspring heart studies. And there is good data to support that if patients do just a minimum of mitigating those risk factors, they are a kind of lifetime risk of cardiac diseases, including mortality, will be cut substantially. But from a functional medicine perspective, we have to go deeper and we have to say, well, why do they develop high blood pressure? Why do they develop diabetes or insulin resistance? Why are they prone to being obese? What's driving the, the increase in cholesterol? Uh, what is the reason that they are constantly anxious and maybe resorting to, you know, smoking or other substances, so to speak, to medicate themselves? What's the impact of their genetics as well as their environment? You know, lack of a support system, lack of loving relationships, uh, pollution, uh, stressful job environment. So, so this, I think, where functional medicine gives us the foundation that traditional cardiology does not quite see yet. You know, they're sort of beginning to emerge from realization that these traditional risk factors that we have are powerful, but they're not enough because we know there is a residual risk uh, pretty much for every single patient. So how do we take this population-based framework and now personalize the risk estimate for every patient? And, you know, a lot of my time is spent discussing with the patient how we're going to personalize this risk estimate and what we can do about it. And, you know, a big part of it, of course, is the entire immune inflammatory root cause for vascular diseases and not just for 
cardiovascular disease, but also for structural heart diseases, for example, such as heart failure, uh, and even for other diseases like Alzheimer's or cancer. So how do we identify these immune drivers? How do we quantify the state of inflammation? And how do we do what you know, functional medicine does best? Provide something that an individual is missing and remove something that potentially is harming their health, right? So there is always a balance. And so this is where I think the radical difference is that, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell a patient just take this medication for blood pressure. I will take a patient while well, we need to figure out why you're hypertensive. And yes. Yeah. You may have to take medication for a short term, you know, depends, remains to be seen, but there are a lot of things we can do to figure out why hypertension is an issue. Right, right. So you're basically like, for me as an internist, that's really what I'm asking, right? When I see someone who has a weight issue, who has a sleep issue, we're looking at why do you have it rather than just say, okay, we're going to treat because... What you see happening is patients go in with high blood pressure. They never see a cardiologist at that time. They're just seeing their regular internist. They take a medicine and it's almost like, it's harmless. I just take high blood pressure medicine. It's almost, it's common. So they normalize it, but it's never normal to have high blood pressure. It doesn't matter what your age is. There is some hardening of the blood vessels, but if you're having an increased blood pressure, are there some root causes for why somebody's blood pressure goes up. So what would you say as, because from an internal medicine standpoint, I see a lot of things that uh, drive up high blood pressure. For you, what do you, uh, I'm, I'm sure as a cardiologist, you get the more difficult to control blood pressures too. What do you see as one of the most common root causes that we completely miss and we should be addressing? So uh, there are two, actually, you know, I'm going to preface it by saying that if a patient presents with a blood pressure that is elevated, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are hypertensive, or at least not yet, you know, uh, there is a need to establish the timeline and the context to understand what this blood pressure elevation was at. Uh, and if it's confirmed, it's also important to make sure that there are no secondary causes, right? You know, those could be reversible, but even some of those secondary causes, which are thought to be anatomic, uh, potentially have a connection into this, you know, underlying systems biology space, but it gets a little bit more esoteric. You know, for the hypertensive patient who doesn't have these secondary causes and is known to have high blood pressure, whether it's labile blood pressure or established hypertension, the top two factors that I see are insulin resistance and sympathetic activation, right? So a lot of patients do not understand or, or not necessarily thinking that something like diabetes is actually preceded by decades of uh, an abnormality called insulin resistance. And it's not an on or off switch. You don't just wake up one day being type 2 diabetic. You sort of graduate into type 2 diabetes after many years, if not decades, of ignoring the insulin resistance. And, you know, physiologically, it makes sense. And some of the uh, uh, most common reasons, for, especially for labile blood pressure, blood pressure where 
patient says, well, it's normal at home, but it's not normal in your office. But then you look at the blood pressure log at home and you see that it's not really normal at home at all times, normal sometimes, but not at others. But insulin resistance is very powerful. You know, the uh, issue, of course, with addressing insulin resistance is that we really don't have good diagnostic tools to do that right? You know, uh, all of our parameters, all of our blood work was actually standardized to monitor diabetic patients on insulin. Yeah. Now, those are patients who are in, in this corner, insulin resistance may be somebody in that corner. So I find, you know, things, you know, more contemporary things such as continuous glucose monitors make a big difference for these type of patients, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let me, let me ask you this. This, is, that's, this was important when you said this. I remember, I mean, I went to the medical school in the 80s, late 80s. At that time, establishing high blood pressure required us to take blood pressure both in the upper extremities, lower extremities, doing 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. We don't do any of this. We just ask patients to come and take two readings and then say they have high blood pressure. So in the patient's mind, they're saying, you know, I just get white coat hypertension or I'm just stressed when I go to the doctor's. So a lot of times there is non-compliance with the medication because they don't feel bad. You're telling them there's a number that's high. How do you resolve this issue? How do you get a patient to understand that that high blood pressure means something? And what is that conversation that you have? And do you do 24 hours blood pressure monitoring? So I don't do 24-hour blood pressure monitors because I find them sort of very clunky, noisy, and invasive. And uh, they disrupt people's sleep and uh, not necessarily give me the best understanding longitudinally of what happens with person's blood pressure. But currently, there are a ton of Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure cuffs uh, and even a regular blood pressure cuff that a patient you know, uses by themselves and the, the simpler the better could give us a very good indication what blood pressure is at. So I usually ask them to check it twice a day uh, in the morning, 30 minutes, either after medication or after they, you know, settle down, maybe they had a meal already and what have you, and right at bedtime. And I look for patterns. I mean, they're welcome to check it at any other time too, if they don't feel well or something else is going on. But we need at least those two time points, you know, to kind of make a decision and see longitudinally what the blood pressure is in the context of their daily life. And it's amazing how many patients who say, oh, I just have white coat hypertension. I'm always like this in doctor's offices, you know, and you look at their blood pressure diary and, well, no, they don't just have the white coat hypertension. They have what's called labile hypertension. I ask them to bring their blood pressure cuffs to the office visit so that we can see if, you know, their cuff and my cuff are sort of measuring in the same zone in the plus minus 10 millimeters of mercury and i find that this really provides the best kind of patient uh, opportunity because then they start to understand that blood pressure is more than just a you know isolated measurement at a specific time it's more of a longitudinal or continuous variable which is very important for them to keep an eye on uh, of course, you know, being a cardiologist, I have certain advantages because I can always get, you know, my handheld ultrasound and do a quick echocardiogram and look for the thickening of the heart muscle and the relaxation patterns, as well as other parameters. And I know, you know, based on that and, you know, based on electrocardiogram as well, uh, whether 
there's any evidence of end organ involvement, right? Because there are also entities called masked hypertension. There are sometimes patients come into your office and they're normotensive. And yet you find these footprints of end organ involvement. And this is a very interesting entity. It's called masked hypertension. That's for whichever reason in your office, they happen to be normotensive today, but you know, they're not, you know, necessarily normotensive at other times or blood pressure is not bad. So there is a lot of opportunities, I think, to involve a patient, you know, in this journey to give them a sense of patient agency, which I think is very important. Right. Uh, and to kind of also give them an understanding that the whole sympathetic activation is a big deal because they know that, let's say, if they had, you know, some sort of unpleasant discussion or some stress, you know, if they measure blood pressure right afterwards, they see that the numbers are climbing, right? And that's that whole sympathetic arousal and uh, sympathetic activation and sort of a persistent sympathetic state that really constricts the vessels and changes the vascular tone. You know, for, for the internists, I would say a very much underdiagnosed but super important condition for hypertension is obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. And, yes. And it's amazing how many patients have never been asked. And, you know, it's such a simple questionnaire. You can put it in your forms. And it gives you, you know, a fairly good sort of rule of thumb estimate how likely they are to have obstructive sleep apnea. And again, you know, if their insurance allows them, they can go to the sleep lab. And sometimes, uh, often it even covers their home base sleep apnea testing, which is very easy to do. Uh, you know, so there is a lot of, I would say, and, and that actually is what often leads to that sympathetic activation. So if I see the sympathetic activation, I very often try to see if this patient has obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, so just to explain what sympathetic and parasympathetic is, I put it this way, is you you have your foot on the accelerator mm-hmm. and the parasympathetic is you can get it on the brakes. So you right. just kind of come to a pause. And most people, they don't realize that, in fact, I think a lot of, um, um, what do you call, roundtable conferences where people say, you know, I don't feel stressed. I really love having these discussions when you actually measure their hormones, their cortisol goes through the roof and their blood pressure goes through the roof. So a lot of times you may not feel the stress, but your body is responding differently. So I think measuring the blood pressure is a huge um, value, of huge value for a patient. The other part that really drives up all of this cardiovascular, you did speak of insulin resistance, sleep apnea, then the uh, kind of, slowly evolving high blood pressure, which you think, I'm so glad you said, comes really from underlying insulin resistance. What about high cholesterol in all of this? Where do you stand on that? And how do, you know, people go for an annual physical exam, they get a cholesterol check, and everybody gets put on a cholesterol-lowering medicine because our, um, what do you call those numbers, our, our standard of care. Right it gets lower and lower when it comes to cholesterol. From a functional medical standpoint, I know we have a different take on it. How do you, coming from cardiology, how do you feel about that approach, current approach? So another great question. I have to tell you, this is actually the area where preventive cardiology comes the closest to the functional medicine perspective, believe it or not. Because there is obviously recognition that cholesterol elevation is a stress reaction, right? So cholesterol is not something that just 
pops in your body unexpectedly. Yes, there are genetic syndromes mm -hmm. that predispose a patient to elevated levels of cholesterol, including LDL cholesterol. But the escalation in cholesterol numbers is usually an indicator of some mm -hmm. other imbalance. You know, again, is it an immune system activation? Is it an inflammatory response? Is it a hormonal imbalance that is pushing it up? Even an acute infection can possibly do this. Insulin yep. resistance, right? Increasing the stress in the body and changing the perfusion to the kidneys will very likely lead to dyslipidemia. So the cholesterol then becomes both a marker uh, as well as a risk factor. And this is also what makes it so challenging because we know that cholesterol deposits are essential components mm -hmm. of the plaque and the more vulnerable the plaque is, the more of these cholesterol deposits it has and they are prone to oxidation and they lead to instability, vascular instability. But we also uh, need to understand why did the cholesterol went up in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. you know, what is driving the strain? And in many patients, you will see that a few years perhaps before notable cholesterol elevations, they actually have elevation in triglycerides. So we're back into that insulin resistance reality. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of, I think, my personal sort of, not a pet peeve, but a concern that I have is that um, a lot of functional medicine practitioners are very much anti-statin drugs and they look at LDL cholesterol or HDL cholesterol uh, again from that number perspective yeah. and you know we have actually moved away from the numbers quite a bit you know in medicine based on recent guidelines mm -hmm. and put our numbers in the context of vascular risk. And I think what's really much more important, whether you are a traditional cardiologist, traditional internist, or a functional medicine practitioner of any specialty, is that you need to look at these lipid numbers within the context of a person's risk. And so there's a great risk equation. It's called 10-year uh, atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease risk estimator. It's free. It's online. You know, uh, a patient can plug in their numbers. A practitioner can plug in their numbers. It sort of gives you a ballpark estimate, this patient in front of you versus the population level of risk, you know, how do they get defined, you know, within that population? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, looking then at cholesterol balance, one has to say, well, what is, what is the driver behind it? And what is also the risk behind it? Because the duration of exposure to elevated cholesterol is important. Yeah. The presence or absence of vascular disease is important because, you know, we know that once there is vascular disease, whether a person has identifiable plaque, a calcium score, a prior heart attack, a stent or bypass surgery, there is benefit to lowering that LDL cholesterol with statin drugs, right? That's not the only benefit a patient can have. The root causes still need to be addressed because there's residual risk that occurs even with absolutely optimal level of LDL cholesterol. And it is that concept of personal risk and residual risk that I think bridges right now the uh, preventive cardiology thinking with the functional medicine perspective. You know, I think that's where we can probably find the closest alignment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I find that when people's cholesterol goes up over a period of time, 
um, especially when just the LDL alone goes up, I always, I, I can bet there's something going on with their thyroid if the LDL alone goes up. Now, a lot of times the whole cholesterol profile, the total cholesterol, triglycerides, all of those go up. And um, being of South Asian origin, a lot of South Asians do come to my practice. And one of the things I realized is when I shift their diet, really literally remove oils, particularly this infamous olive oil, cooking everything in olive oil, it actually shifts there. Oh, that's your dog on the background. Look at I that. Have, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let her out if that's okay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Go <laughs> ahead. recording because she's like making noises here. <laughs> so hold on a second. She's making noises. You see? Cute. <laughs> she's cute, but she's making noises now. <laughs> Sometimes she just, you know, wants to assert herself. And, of course. <laughs> and like, oh, I just saw in between your background. It's like I see that cute face. But anyways, so when I find that shifting, that moving away from the oils really improves the cholesterol profile because I think it improves their insulin resistance, not because of their cholesterol. This is what I, because a lot of them have high triglycerides. So if you could just give a good understanding from a cardiology standpoint, for patients who are listening to this, when they're told that they they have normal cholesterol, what what are their doctors talking about? Is it the LDL, the total cholesterol, triglycerides? How are they all different? And is HDL having a high HDL? I still find a lot of physicians say, "Oh, you have a high HDL, so you're good, you're protected." What is the what is the fact and what is the myth? So, you know, so uh, oh, first of all, Nisha, you know, you're 100% correct because that's been my patient experience also uh, that insulin resistance is a dominant factor. And once you change a patient to a whole food, plant-based diet, and especially if you put some time restriction into when they eat, you sort of constrict that window to lower insulin resistance, they do much better, they drop their cholesterol. You know, there has been a push, a uh, significant push since I would probably say 1980s, and this was mostly uh, grew out of Dr. Ornish's work, you know, the push to put, transition patients to vegan diet, you know, which is actually not something that I support. I think there are issues with the vegan diet and it's not a solution for every single patient, although it might be for some, you know, for specific reasons. I think the there are two myths, uh, I would say, at least two kind of top misconceptions that patients may run into when they speak to their doctors. One of them is when a physician says, well, your LDL cholesterol is elevated, but your ratios are good right? Because ratios are just a numerical concept. And yes, while there was some literature supporting that ratios may be predictive in a context of cardiac events, you can't really hang your hat on a specific ratio and say that's why you are protected, right? And the second situation, and that usually has to do with LDL cholesterol is elevated, but your total cholesterol to HDL ratios are good. Mm -hmm. Now, you're right, 100% that hormonal influences are tremendous, you know, uh, not just the thyroid. And usually if I see an abrupt rise in total cholesterol, uh, I'm looking for thyroid issue. If there's sort of a fairly rapid, you know, bump. Um, and, but reproductive steroids as well and connections to the adrenal gland. And, you know, in particular, seeing other markers that come up in that kind of middle age spectrum that are 
highly important to address. And, uh, you know, so what are they? I'll probably the best thing to illustrate is uh, one of my patients, you know, one of my patients in his late 50s, uh, he came to see me after his cardiologist insisted that he goes for bypass surgery. Now, this is a patient who already had stenting. Uh, it was years back. He was a young man at that time, just basically early 50s, um, and was a little bit obese and had insulin resistance, but really uh, was discovered uh, because of some sort of like ill-defined complaints to have extensive coronary artery disease that was unexpected now there was a bit of a you know sort of red herring in this in this story because he had hodgkin's lymphoma so he received radiation to the chest so mm -hmm. you know potentially potentially a culprit right you know for yeah. uh, coronary artery disease but he didn't really receive the type of radiation that usually causes you know vascular damage but mm -hmm. You know, so he got stented and then uh, within a short period of time, despite having perfect cholesterol and losing weight and exercising and following plant-based diet, he ended up with recurrence of these blockages, not just in the old location, but in the new location as well. And so what ended up happening is that when we looked at his residual risk and what is actually driving his residual risk, he still had sort of this metabolic footprint on his lipid profile. He had significant elevation in total LDL particles, and a lot of them were small. And he had markers of vascular inflammation. Uh, and then he had an elevation in something called lipoprotein little a. Uh, and that was uh, in the context of his total testosterone and free testosterone being in the lower ranges, uh, kind of still normal, but in the lower ranges. And I think the opportunity that was missed there is to really understand what is a residual risk for this patient beyond the LDL lowering. And I think this is where cardiology traditional cardiology is heading right now you know they realized we realized through science and through research through outcome studies that there is a limit you know sort of return on investment in terms of what you get with ldl lowering there is a plateau because even with uh, medications such as pcq9 inhibitors that put ldl cholesterol into teens the event reduction was not a whopper you know there was maybe 23, 25% relative risk reduction of heart cardiac events. So what is then driving this risk train? And clearly there are other factors. So I think patients need to specifically ask if there is a reason for them to have this more advanced lipid analysis, right? And how they can best uh, identify what is their risk you know, in terms of uh, residual risk, you know, and it's sort of one, one, one of those uh, things that, you know, very important for patients to understand and to kind of quiz their physician, you know, because uh, at the end of the day, it's a collaborative experience. And, you know, probably in the majority of regular encounters, whether it's an internist or a cardiologist, patients are not likely to get this level of care. You know, they will need to see an integrative or functional medicine doc. Yep. But at least if they know what they're looking for, they can ask these questions. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm of the belief, especially seeing people, a lot of people with metabolic syndrome, 
I think everybody, at least once in their lifetime, should get a complete lipid profile with a lipoprotein pattern, at least to know. And I find that sometimes I've had patients who I've seen after five years, suddenly the lipoprotein pattern has changed. The lipids may not be, maybe just a slight increase. So just to explain to people, what is a full pattern and what a LP little a is, is there a simple way to explain that to patients and why that's never checked? I think nowadays it's actually checked more than it used to be because there's greater recognition of it as a risk factor and it became part of a lot of standard lipid panels. But, you know, we uh, uh, conceptualize lipoprotein little a as a sticky cholesterol. We sort of think of it as this special type of cholesterol, which is like a Velcro patch. It sort of comes on and grabs to areas which may be damaged to fix them. And if you think about it, evolutionarily, it had a great advantage because you know, primitive humans running away from wild animals and getting injured, they needed to be patched up. And, you know, the whole job of cholesterol in the body is to fix the cellular membranes, right, to patch things up. So having those little uh, sticky cholesterols actually had an evolutionary advantage. The problem is, is that we are right now in the environment that is very challenging because of the uh, psychosocial stress, environmental stress, food-related stress. And so that, plus the middle-age transition and hormonal imbalances, tends to bump up the lipoprotein little a. In addition to it, I would definitely suggest that patients check the uh, amount of both LDL, uh, bad cholesterol, and HDL, good cholesterol particles, their sizing, uh, and certain other markers of risk that are a little bit more... uh, Specific, you know, uh, there's something called high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which I'm sure you were checking quite a bit. And additional markers, uh, one is called ADMA and another one is called TMAO. And they're a little bit more uh, interesting together with another one called MPO. They're usually part of advanced lipid profiles, whether it's a Quest or Cleveland Heart Lab or, and some other laboratories offer these as well. So this is kind of a deep dive because... It takes you from uh, just a population level estimate, which is where LDL cholesterol comes in, just the LDL cholesterol number, to a more personalized residual risk uh, estimate, which I think where most patients would likely want to be. Uh, I think an interesting new test that's coming down the pike that I have not seen yet offered, at least not freely in the commercial domain, is the ability to measure the function of HDL cholesterol. Because you know, just as well as I do, that there are patients who seem to have an HDL cholesterol that is just too good to be true, right? Yeah. Like in, 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 the in the hundreds, and, and patients say, oh, it's so great, you know, I, I will be like, you know, a super person, a superhuman. Uh, but there is a reason that a body pumped out that much HDL cholesterol. It's probably because it's not as functional as it needs to be. So the body is trying to obviously uh, fix the deficit. So we know that within that group of patients, they're actually patients who have significant vascular events, and that has to do with HDL dysfunction. And some of the uh, trials in the past that aimed to raise HDL cholesterol and resulted in those dysfunctional particles, and those were the SEPT inhibitor trials, 
showed increased vascular event rates and they were stopped prematurely. So, you know, so there is, there is a reverse sort of, you know, a dark side to the cholesterol story. And uh, I think the context makes a huge difference. Yeah, I, I don't know if it even is relevant. I don't even know. I've tried to look up this. But I used to work for assisted livings and nursing homes. And when I did, like assisted living particularly, you do chronic clinic and you do their um, lipid profile like once a year or once in six months. I would find a lot of my patients who lived long and had dementia had a very high HDL cholesterol. I don't know the association. I've never seen anything written about it, but I think it's something that people need to look at. There's something about the HDL cholesterol getting that high and for people who are wondering what is HDL, it's the one we call as healthy cholesterol, or people think it's the good cholesterol, it's not necessarily good. Sometimes when it's high, you really need to dig for um, you know, some other reason. And in fact, I think I saw an article that said high HDL cholesterol also could mean exposure to toxins. Now, I don't know what kind of toxins, but there are so many theories behind very high so-called good cholesterol. So in terms of this cholesterol, like you do a profile, you find that, you know, somebody, in fact, I'm a part of the National Lipid Association, and a lot of their focus is on genetic disorders of high cholesterol. They rarely speak about uh, regular people having high cholesterol. It's really, you know, the familial hypercholesterolemia and, um, or combined um, um, disorders. How often is cholesterol, like what is the percentage of true genetic problems with high cholesterol? What do you, what do you see in your practice? Well, so I, I, can, I can tell you, I apologize for these phone calls, but I can tell you that familial hypercholesterolemia in a homozygous form, which is actually quite rare. Yeah, and that's that's the one where uh, patients present as children. They have you know phenomenal LDL elevations. They usually need LDL apheresis, and so they are uh, unfortunately suffer from a lot of vascular events early on. Uh, there is a suspicion that a lot of patients in the routine practice, we're saying routine medical practice, who present with cholesterol elevations have so-called heterozygous form of familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, and currently, there is no endorsement necessarily to test their genetics unless there's a clear familial pattern and the numbers are too high because then we're obviously looking for this homozygous variant that somehow may have, you know, slipped through the cracks. Uh, what I found in clinical practice is that majority of those patients that think that they have heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, or as they put it, the trans in my family, actually don't have it. And a quick and easy way to do this is to do some of the direct-to-consumer tests. You know, uh, recently, 23andMe got approved by the FDA to re report several familial hypercholesterolemia genes. Hmm. And so I can tell you that in multiple patients looking at these reports, the most common variants haven't been identified. Now, of course, there are limits to this type of direct-to-consumer SNP testing. They're not testing for everything, and you know, they're testing for few most common types. Yeah. Uh, I would say probably more important than that is to look at your patient APOE status. Mm -hmm. And you know, and the APOE status has nothing to do with familial hypercholesterolemia. 
but it really has to do with production and delivery of LDL cholesterol and at least a hundred other functions, including the cleavage of beta amyloid. So that's the relationship between the APOE status and Alzheimer's type dementia. And, you know, APOE doesn't always do uh, you know, it's it's a prominent marker, but it works in company with a lot of other markers that modify both the vascular risk and the dementia risk. And, you know, it's interesting that you said there was a link between these uh, patients, older female patients who were demented, who also had high HDLs, you know. So there are a lot of these genetic combinations that position a patient in a very uh, undesirable situation. So I would say, you know, patients who have family history of uh, dementia, especially if it's in the primary degree relative, especially if it's something that uh, onset was late, you know, uh, they should definitely inquire about their APOE status. And I would say that any adult, you know... Uh, I mean, onset was early. Early dementia. Uh, early is not always Alzheimer's type dementia because, you know, APOE very often is related to late onset as well. Yeah. So I would say that any adult uh, that, you know, by the labs, I would say two things that they deserve to know, maybe just once, uh, is lipoprotein little a, and the APOE status, because I feel like those two are so critical right. and they relate to other areas such as cognitive health and memory and vascular health, aortic valve calcification, that's more for lipoprotein little a, hormonal imbalances, you know, immune and infectious activation, that it is really imperative that the adult patients actually get these two tests you know they may need to get them obviously you won't be checking apoe annually you know like unfortunately yeah, yeah. elevated and what have you but they do deserve to have those tests done yeah i totally agree i don't think i have any patient uh, in the last five years that hasn't had an apoe in fact i think i started apoe testing probably in 2011 um, because I find it so valuable to give them even the dietary counseling and, you know, the exercise recommendations to protect your brain. So in terms of, um, so cholesterol, so somebody who is taking a statin, now that you mentioned that, um, I think this, it's the most controversial drug ever, right? The uh, cardiologist would want to take it even if they don't have a cholesterol uh, problem because they feel like you know there's so many benefits to it and then google university frightens everybody saying you know you take uh, a statin you're gonna have dementia you're gonna have diabetes there's some truth to both um but where would you how would you explain to patient who is totally resistant to taking a cholesterol lowering medicine because it's a, it, it, the the fact of the matter is the way the cholesterol lowering medicine works, there has been, there have been issues where it does impact your memory. Um, so in some people more than others, and then there is definitely 25 to 30% increased risk at a certain dosage, particularly in women to develop diabetes. So a lot of people will say, I took the cholesterol lowering medicine. That's how I got diabetes. So it's the chicken and egg story. Did your cholesterol go up because you started having insulin resistance to begin with and you just suppressed the cholesterol right. and now you have diabetes because, you know, you've not addressed the root cause. So how would you educate people on that? 
Well, so I'll start by uh, somewhat disagreeing with you about statins being the most controversial drugs because I think the most controversial ones right now are OxyContin, you know, following the whole Purdue no, formula. I think that's very clear. You want yeah, to pain, Purdue you know, but um, in terms of the statin drugs, you know, uh, clearly there are pluses and minuses. And something that helps my patients understand it is realization that reduction in LDL cholesterol is not always the goal with this medication, right? So the initial discoveries of the statin drugs and subsequent investigations have pointed to their pleiotropic effects, kind of this, you know, inflammatory, anti-inflammatory plaque stabilizing characteristics. And actually we know, for example, from trials that if we give a patient a statin drug, there's increased in coronary artery calcifications, and that's actually a good thing because it means that more unstable plaques have come to that final healing stage, right? And they're now calcified. So the decision to take a statin drug varies. You know, it varies with regard to patient's baseline status in terms of cardiac risk and in terms of cognitive risk. You know, usually, even in my patients who have cardiac disease, I try not to drop the total cholesterol to less than 150 because once it goes to less than 150, this is where the likelihood of memory issues actually seems to increase. So, uh, you know, but there is quite a few kind of, you know, stages before that, and there is a lot of room. And certainly those of them who have known coronary artery disease, had received stent or bypass surgery, have a high calcium score, I would actually aim for LDL cholesterol of 70 uh, mm -hmm. and really make it a priority. Uh, in addition, obviously, to looking at other factors, triglycerides and protein A and the particles and more of these uh, kind of uh, uh, advanced markers of vascular and systemic inflammation. And so it's the risk versus benefit. You know, uh, there are fortunately are very quick and easy and again, commercially available uh, genomic analyses, you know, there is a SNP called SLOCA1B1 and uh, potentially gives you an understanding if a patient is likely to experience myopathy, uh, in which case they need a different type of a statin drug, lower dose, water-soluble, uh, and certainly CoQ10 support needs to be fairly rigorous. Uh, what I find using this strategy is that a lot of patients who were initially resistant, even those who had reactions in the past, uh, they seem to tolerate lower doses and over time, one can you know, increase the doses uh, if needed to reach the goals, right? And so uh, this, is, this is the protocol that I often use. Sometimes I start cholesterol drug at low dose every other day with CoQ10 support. Uh, I think it is critical before it started, if a patient had prior reactions, to make sure that their hormonal balance is optimized, uh, certainly heal the gut, because, you know, you don't want to be, just as you said, they may be insulin resistant, and that's why lipids are climbing, so we're going to give them a statin drug, but that's going to just make their insulin resistance so much worse, right? Yeah. You know, so we want to address these driving risk factors, you know, metabolic, hereditary, hormonal, and toxic, so that they have 
an opportunity to actually remain on the medication for a certain period of time. Uh, you know, I certainly favor it in all of my uh, APOE4 carriers, you know, especially if they're homozygous, because they seem to have the highest risk, um, and uh, a little less so in, obviously, in those who are just the APOE33. But uh, again, multiple variables have to be taken in context. Yeah, so basically, like with any other uh, disease, you want to not only look at your genetic risk, um, some of it is not direct risk, but a kind of polygenic, lots of genes will be involved. You want to look at the inflammatory markers. You want to look at how much of cholesterol production is really there. And then this LP little A. And this one other thing that I find in cardiovascular assessment is something called the homocysteine. Mm -hmm. um, how often do you check that and what can you tell us about homocysteine spe specifically? Oh, so this, this is in all of my initial panels and if it's abnormal, certainly in follow-up panels, right? Because homocysteine is a super important marker. It is kind of a litmus test for the methylation reactions. And we know that these methylation reactions is what actually powers a lot of, you know, uh, nitric oxide conversion, which is behind the endothelial dysfunction. Mm -hmm. uh, another one that I check very often is actually TMAO. You know, so yeah. if a patient has limited funds, I would definitely say APOE status, LP little a, uh, I'm saying in addition to standard yeah. panel, okay, uh, uh, TMAO and homocysteine will give actionable information because, you know, TMAO is the byproduct, bacterial product of animal byproducts. So there is certainly an opportunity there to modify a patient's diet quite a bit, to increase the gut transit, to do a 5R program, repopulate the gut. You know, homocysteine is fairly easy to address as well. You know, we know how to power methylation. Usually the more green leafy vegetables people eat, the better, or they can take a B vitamin or SAMI. So there's always an opportunity there uh lipoprotein little a has to do quite a bit with a hormonal balance so seeking that hormonal balance solution might be one of the best strategies for lipoprotein little a uh, and of course apoe status is relevant because if there is uh, any indication that you know there is a potential higher risk for neurocognitive dysfunction than for example from uh, reference uh, population there are protocols to address this, you know, such as recode protocol by Dr. Bredesen. So I find that, you know, the test should obviously only be done if there are actionable opportunities. Right. And right. these are the actionable opportunities beyond the standard lipid profile that the patients can actually leverage to improve their health. Yeah. And the last part in cardiovascular, the one that I also um, sometimes is very controversial is omega-3 the omega-3 and omega-6 profile in the index. How, and you know, people get access to omega-3. If you're hanging out Google University, <laughs> it's the next miracle drug, right? That's available. <laughs> so everybody is on omega-3. So what, what are your thoughts from a cardiology standpoint on omega-3s? So uh, it, it's another interesting cardiology story because, uh, as you know, uh, you know, very smart and highly respected scientists who I admire, cardiologists from uh, Harvard Medical School, were all behind uh, a study that recently uh, hit the journals, I think perhaps two years ago, it's called Reduce It. And, you know, Reduce It was an excellent study. It used uh, pharmacological 
uh, ethyl uh, astrotriglycerides. So it was a synthetic, but it used a very large dose and uh, convincingly showed uh, a reduction in cardiovascular events and even improvement in total mortality for those patients whose lipids, LDL mostly, and total cholesterol were controlled but whose triglycerides were still elevated. So, of mm. course, they had insulin resistance, right? Now, then came subsequent studies, and one was just recently presented at the American Heart Association that uh, used lower dosages, and those were not really pharmacological prescriptions, and that's the issue with a lot of supplement-based research. And it really didn't show any benefit. Now, what is interesting is that... Uh, we know that statistically at these higher doses, uh, there is actually statistical increase, small, but statistically significant in occurrence of atrial fibrillation. So, so there is no universal fish oils are good for you all the time, get as many as you can kind of, uh, you know, recipe here. I think that there is certainly, if a patient is eligible, one can certainly use those prescription-based uh, fish oils. They're EPA only, so they don't have any DHA component, but they may have prescription insurance coverage. I certainly almost never try to use them at these maximal doses. I, you know, I usually kind of give half dose, and that happens often because a lot of patients are an aspirin and maybe some other, you know, yeah, so you need to be careful with that, you know, plus if they go for procedures, they're going to be asked to stop them. So, so that's all good. And I don't feel that there is a need to make them super high, but you know, but omega-3 uh, to uh, omega-6 to omega-3 index, if we can get it to be kind of four or five to one, I think will do very well. And if we can get overall omega-3 index to be somewhere around 4.5 to 5, we're also going to do well because that's sort of the sweet spot, you know. But I certainly would not advise patients to run and, you know, purchase tons of fish oils. Uh, and outside of the fact that it could also have certain toxicity if it's direct to consumer and rancidity and, uh, you know, just not be pure and potentially have mercury contamination. So, right. so yeah, story is still being written on omega three fatty acids. It goes in cardiology. Yeah, new chapters. The new chapters are rolling off the presses. Right, right. So, as a cardiologist, if you if somebody comes in, uh, you know, in, at a party, they just want to know what should I be eating to protect my heart. What would you say? I would say put down your drink and your plate full of food and you're protecting your heart immediately starting now. <laughs> Don't have a heart attack on the plate. You, so, you, honestly, you honestly just modified in an instant your entire vascular response. <laughs> yes, you know, that's no one's going to do that. So obviously, <laughs> like, what, what would be a cardiologist's uh, recommendation of a diet that is uh, heart-friendly? Yes, I would say whatever includes no to limited sugar, for sure, right? Mm -hmm. So elimination of all the simple sugars is key. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, most of the patients, I guess, that I see and probably most of the patients that you see may have already eliminated fast foods and ultra-processed foods, right? You know, and saturated or trans fats. So I'm assuming that most patients have already done kind of the basic lifestyle effort. Uh, but at that juncture, it's really eliminating uh, the secret 
kind of sources of sugar. And in addition to it, really practicing time-restricted eating pattern. Uh, you know, some sometimes patients have it, uh, you know, call it uh, intermittent fasting. Yeah. You know, there are some similarities, there are some differences, but honestly, that's, you know, that's really the key. Whether or not they're tilting a little bit more toward high fat versus uh, kind of higher protein, I am not a big supporter of ketogenic diets, certainly not long-term. I think they have a role as an intervention in yep. selected patients. I wouldn't use them for long-term healthcare maintenance. I think the only diet over the long-term that had proven its value again and again and again in the cardiovascular diseases as well as total mortality and cancer is Mediterranean diet, right? Or cardiometabolic plan. And I think tweaking that cardiometabolic plan, making it sometimes as low in glycemic index as possible together with time-restricted eating and adding some healthy fat components like extra virgin olive oil and some nuts, that's really what most patients will be able to do and they will be able to sustain it uh, and they honestly don't need, you know, there's no nutritional gaps for like, like a vegan diet for which they need to take vitamins and what have you, you know, uh, and it's pleasurable and, uh, you know, it's something that had proven its, you know, scientific base is very strong behind the Mediterranean approach. Right. And uh, you, if you have this hard-headed patient who's taking their time to change their lifestyle, are there any specific supplements that you would recommend um, for them to, you know, kind of maintain status quo so that disease doesn't get worse? Um, because supplements to me are no different than medications. You're taking a supplement, you're a medication, you're trying to intervene something till you can get to the root cause. But are there some cardiac friendly supplements that you would like to recommend on a regular basis? Well, I like them to use fiber, actually. You mm -hmm. know, one of my favorite ones is OptiFiber by Zymogen. You know, it works extremely well. You can have it as a capsule. You can have it as a powder. And sometimes what I do is that I convince them to have a protein shake as a meal replacement, and they can just add fiber into this protein shake, right? Because you, they can also mix a lot of things. Uh, for patients who are insulin-resistant, uh, alpha-lipoic acid, especially extended release, you know, uh, and some of it is compounded with spurgamate, seems to work very well for both the sugar and the lipids. I think the newer supplement that I came across in also was a Zymogen line is called BurgaCore Plus. So it's actually uh, bergamot and amla, you know, which is Indian gooseberry. Yeah. So the results are excellent. I actually have one patient who absolutely refuses to have any statins despite the coronary calcium score of nearly 500, you know. So we had to go with fiber and, you know, Burgacore Plus. Uh, and she had approximately a 30% drop in her LDL cholesterol. Now, she truly is familiar heterozygous dyslipidemic mm -hmm. patient because her baseline LDLCs are approaching 300. Mm -hmm. so, you know, so with diet and time-restricted eating and collection of supplements, she was able to bring her LDL into 250s, but it's still, you know, far cry from the 70 to 100 that she needs to be on. You know, so we have, you know, so obviously... 
we can at least get halfway of the way there. You know, let's see if we can kind of, you know, keep on moving forward. So, uh, so those I would think would be very important for patients. And uh, honestly, they don't necessarily need to buy anything way too expensive. If they just want to use Metamucil and that's all they can afford, that would be fine too, as long as they're actually using it. Mm, yeah, okay. Yeah, Metamucil, I think, is made from wheat, if I'm not mistaken. It is, but if they can tolerate it and they yeah. feel comfortable with it, you know, usually for my older patients, if that's the only fiber they're willing to consume, I let them do that, you know. <laughs> right. You know, they, they do understand, and I tell them that very specifically, that none of the supplements are direct to consumer will usually work the way that professional supplementation right. does. Right. And, and, you know, and I had proven it to myself time and time again and also to multiple patients. So at this point, it's not even worth, you know, our discussion to prove this, but they have a choice, you know, and the choice, of course, is either to follow a recommendation and uh, try to make a difference uh, or, or not. <laughs> That's right. Is there anything in this conversation you wish that I asked but I did not? Uh, oh, that's a tough one. Well, we only had a short span of time and I actually have a, a hard stop because I need to jump off in about five minutes. I think it would be great to discuss hormones and the heart, you know, mm -hmm. and how, again, you know, we seem to be writing new chapters in that story that a lot yeah. of people thought were old and, uh, you know, done and it's far from done. Uh, and especially, you know, focus a bit more, uh, even, the, even within the hormonal context, really focus on heart diseases that are very unique and highly concentrated in women. And, you know, those are structural heart diseases and certain specific vascular diseases, actually coronary syndromes that are very unusual. We don't see them in male patients as often, hardly ever. And what's interesting uh, about them to me is that they have such a clear and direct connection with functional medicine systems biology perspective. And, you know, uh, the clues are all there. It's just about putting them together. Awesome. Yeah, well, that's you're signed up for part two. <laughs> part two. All right. One day, one day, Michelle, be part two. We will do a part two on hormones and heart health. Well, thank you so much. This has been very educational. So, you know, I think we covered a lot in terms yes. of you know, people, people trying to understand how they can uh, control, take control of their health from cardiovascular standpoint. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Take care. Stay safe. Bye.